And it was one of those things where it was just a never-ending cycle because I would be really extremely paranoid and then I would be hearing the voices and of course I would use the drugs to try to silence the voices which would work for just a very brief amount of time but then it would lead to more paranoia and it would lead to more hallucinations which would it was just an ongoing cycle and it would keep me up days at a time. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's Patreon, P A T R E O N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to the depression files an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, the host. Really excited. Today on the line, we have Cody Green. Cody is a founder of a nonprofit, a motivational speaker and content creator with over 1 million followers on TikTok, where he is known as the schizophrenic hippie. Cody, welcome to the show. Hey, Al. Thanks for having me. Cody, um, it was awesome. It wasn't that long ago, just a few months ago, it feels like, where I had the chance to meet you at a conference uh, in Dallas, the Healthy Voices Conference, which I should say and give credit to Jansen, a division of Johnson & Johnson, who puts on a, a really cool conference for online advocates of chronic illnesses. And I've been lucky enough to go several times, and this was your first trip, right? Yeah, it was my first live event. I did, uh, I did have the ability to join a virtual event the year before as a speaker, but this was my first time being able to come to the live event. Yeah, and it was so funny because I got to the airport. Uh, we were going to Dallas. I got to the Dallas side of the airport, and I was just reading through online some of the presenters and things, and I read your bio and was like, oh, my God, it would be really cool to meet Cody. Like You were literally, honestly, the the one that I wanted to make sure I met during that trip. And then it's so funny. I didn't realize at the time, but you were from Wisconsin. You were on the same flight with me from the Twin Cities to Dallas. And then we both got in myself, you and your wife, Allison, who is wonderful, by the way. Um, and we all three hopped into a vehicle to take us to the hotel in Dallas. Yeah. 
Yep. Uh, it was, it's kind of weird how those things work out too, because, uh, we weren't expecting anyone else from the conference to be on that flight or to be, you know, joining us on the ride to the location either. So it was really cool to be able to kind of meet you before we got to the crazy event and we had to, you know, meet 10,000 other people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was so funny. I got down and they're so organized too. They always have somebody there with a sign, right? Well, I didn't, I didn't see a sign for me or anything that would insinuate that it was me, but I walked up to somebody with a sign and it said green on it. And (laughs) I was, I explained to them that I was for this conference and she was like, Oh, well I'm driving for that conference. And she asked me my name and she's like, oh, yeah, you're with us. And so I thought it was like the green group, like the not the yellow group, the red group. But I was a part of the green group. Little did I know it was your name. And they didn't realize that I wasn't actually a part of your party. So I was lucky to have bumped into her and asked her about that. Yeah. Yep. I was uh, that's that's kind of the part I was like wondering, too, because we saw her with the sign and we saw you with her. And I was like, oh, that must be either someone from Jansen, you know, coming to greet us at the airport or I was like, I was like, huh, that's weird that they, you know, there's another person. And then I saw your luggage and I was like, Oh, I wonder if this is someone else attending the event. That is so funny. So funny. Well, like I said, I was so lucky to have met you. I'm thrilled you're on the show. Um, you are a person who you're 27 years old, right? Oh, 28 now. 28 years old. 28. (laughs) Getting up there. Um, Yeah. And uh, 28 years old, and you live with schizophrenia. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'd love to hear, first of all, from a much younger age, was there any kind of signs or symptoms, and when did it develop, and when did you actually figure it out and get a diagnosis of schizophrenia? Yeah, so there's definitely some signs that you're able to tell if a person is developing schizophrenia. It was really difficult for me to come to terms with my diagnosis early on because I was actually raised by a mother who has schizoaffective disorder, um, which for anyone listening who doesn't know, schizoaffective disorder is a combination of schizophrenia and a mood disorder like bipolar and so I actually watched her develop it when I was younger. And when I turned about 19, my first year of college, I started having auditory and visual hallucinations as well as delusions and paranoia. Wow. And so the symptoms all started for me kind of at once. There probably were signs that I was you know, going to develop the illness. They, they say there's a lot of signs early on for people who are getting out of uh, who are getting into adulthood. Okay. Uh, you know, there's a lot of developmental signs. I didn't recognize any of them. I've always been, you know, a little bit of a different person. So like a lot of the signs they might've pointed to were things that I was already struggling with independently anyways. And so it wasn't until the symptoms actually started before anyone recognized that I was having these symptoms. Right. And it was, it, it wasn't until almost two years after that that I received a diagnosis. Okay. And age 19 or so, that's really pretty typical for the onset of schizophrenia, correct? Yeah. Uh, men tend to develop schizophrenia between 18 to 25 most commonly. Okay. For women, it's a little bit older. It's, uh, I believe it's mid-20s to early 30s, which okay. is like the age range my mom developed it in. Okay. And when you say there may have been signs earlier, can you point, put your finger on any of those and share those with us? 
Yeah, when I was in high school, my last few years of high school, there were things that I noticed about myself. Uh, one was not being as willing to interact with people, losing motivation to do things I was passionate about. Going into college, I, you know, I had all these ideas of things I wanted to do, and I lost all my motivation. I lost a lot of my it felt like I was losing my critical thinking skills too. Okay. Um, like there was a lot of things that I very, you know, that earlier in life I would have understood. I was having a hard time picking up on social cues and my mind was just, I would, I was just so overwhelmed with all sorts of different feelings and emotions I'd never dealt with. So right. early on, I think it was more that I started feeling paranoid. I started having really, uh, intrusive thoughts, and I started isolating myself were kind of the main things I noticed. Okay. A lot of that sounds to me like it could even overlap with something like depression or something. So, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily, in my mind, be an indicator of, oh, this is schizophrenia, but maybe, oh, yeah. there's something going on with my mental health. Yeah. And the problem is with a lot of the, what they call like the precursors of schizophrenia, if you read through the list, it, it could really fall under any mental illness category. And so everyone always asked me what the first signs were, but no one in my life, including me knew that it was schizophrenia until I started having visual and audit auditory hallucinations, you right, know, right. because before that, like you said, it very easily could have fallen into the same symptoms as depression. Um, it could have very easily fallen into the symptoms of other mental illnesses like DID as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So eight, so first of all, I'm really curious, like what was that like for you growing up with your mom who had schizoaffective disorder and, what were some of the challenges in that situation? It was really difficult watching as the oldest sibling. Um, she had three kids. She was a single mom and I was the oldest. And so um, it was when I was, you know, in high school, I was a teenager. She started having symptoms where she would talk to herself when no one was there I didn't, re I didn't recognize that she was really talking to someone who wasn't there. Oh, right. I thought she was just talking to herself. Uh, she would have a lot of mood swings. She would have mania followed by depression. Um, because she did have that mood disorder, she had the bipolar diagnosis of, along with the schizophrenia symptoms. It took a while for her to get a proper diagnosis. She was originally just diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which is really common actually for people even with schizophrenia, but especially with schizoaffective disorder, uh, the mood disorder can sometimes be easier for people to admit to or talk to their therapist about. So it usually gets diagnosed first. And then with the schizophrenia symptoms, it took her a while to open up to her doctors and her care providers about that. She was afraid of, you know, losing her kids and not being able to take care of us. And so for a long time, she tried to go on functioning with it. And same thing I did when I was first having symptoms, you know, it can only last so long before there's going to be issues. Right, right. Wow, that must have been so tough for your mom as a single mother. And like you said, so many worries about, you know, am I going to lose my kids if, if I have a mental diagnosis? And it's interesting. So 
I, I can appreciate how you mentioned the bipolar disorder probably comes as a first diagnosis. A lot of people who I have met who have bipolar disorder are also originally diagnosed with depression because that one is pretty crystal clear and like a hypomania might not be quite as clear. Now, if you go into a, a massive mania and you're maybe, you know, having some delusional thoughts or going on shopping sprees like mad, like then it becomes apparent. But there, there is this real challenge, I think, of actual accurate diagnoses and, and then modifying them as you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the issues people have with medical, you know, medical care that I don't actually look at as an issue. Um, sometimes they get it wrong. You know, sometimes you present different symptoms along the way. And so I even think that sometimes your symptoms can progress through other illnesses. Um, I definitely am one of the more rare cases because I don't have a mood disorder. I didn't, or I wasn't originally diagnosed with a mood disorder or anything like that. I went full blown right into schizophrenia symptoms. And I, I still think the only reason I was able to get that diagnosis right away without having to go through like a depression diagnosis, a bipolar diagnosis was because I had a mom who was already diagnosed with schizophrenic symptoms. So right. with there being, with there being that genetic factor, people just, you know, the, the doctor radar. Exactly. The doctors and psychiatrists I met with recognized the symptoms knew that I had a mom with schizoaffective disorder and it was very clear to them that that's what the diagnosis was. And so I was very fortunate. My mom had already kind of gone through the worst part of it, you know, the misdiagnoses, the getting put on the wrong medication, getting uh, insufficient treatment because they don't know exactly what you're dealing with. I, I missed a lot of that because of my mom's journey with schizoaffective disorder before me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting point. So age 19 rolls around and it's almost 10 years ago now or 11 years ago. So do you remember your very first experience of the auditory and visual hallucinations? Do you remember that first event? I don't remember the very first. I remember some of the early ones. Um, When my hallucinations first started, The auditory came first, and auditory hallucinations are still my most common symptom, even with medication, Um, and they've changed over time. I used to be, I used to have a ton of auditory hallucinations all at once, to the point where, like, it would overwhelm me, and I actually used to have fainting spells and stuff, because it was like there was 10 to 15 voices talking to me at once. Um, and so that would get super overwhelming. And I remember that. I also remember my first visual hallucinations being less like they are now. Now my hallucinations with medication have become more regular people. I don't know a better way to put it. Just like if I was standing with three people in the room, one of them were hallucination, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Wow. Whereas, um, back when my hallucinations first started, My hallucinations used to be a lot different. I had visual hallucinations of what I would call like shadow people as they've been described with, uh, by people who have been through drug addiction and stuff like that. They've described like shadow figures. I used to hallucinate things that were more like that 
but extremely vivid. So like in terms of like addiction and stuff, shadow people are referred to as like out the corner of your eye, you see this figure, you know, it was like that, but very detailed, very like I could see faceless people. I could see what I would call shadow people and they were very dark. It was very scary. And for some reason, when I started medication, my hallucinations didn't necessarily go away, but they kind of changed in a way where they were easier to deal with. I Now my hallucinations tend to be more regular people and less of these like terrifying things I used to see. Right. And, and when you would see, it's interesting because those earlier ones you describe as it was clearly not a real person, like it was just the shadow. You couldn't really see details of the face and stuff, yet. I'm sure it felt as though they were very real characters in front of you. Correct. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, At the time I thought they were real, even like shortly after I was diagnosed, it was very, very typical for me to believe that was real. Uh, It wasn't until years after I was diagnosed and medicated that I could finally look back and be like, yeah, that was definitely, you know, hallucinations. That was definitely my mind playing tricks on me. But if I, went off my meds right now, I bet I would believe that those were real right. uh, because that's like how my brain, I, people always ask me how, how I can be so coherent all the time with medication. And then randomly I'll have symptoms. I'll see things, I'll hear things. And people will automatically ask me like, well, wouldn't you know that that's not real? Wouldn't it make sense that no one's in your house? And for me, it's uh, basically just, there's a bit of delusion that comes with every single hallucination. Things that should make sense don't make sense. And so it's an ongoing struggle of me trying to live my life and determine what's real and what's not. And that's one of the biggest reasons people with schizophrenia uh, tend to uh, seclude themselves and stay out of public and not because it's really hard to differentiate real from fake, especially if you're having ongoing hallucinations and delusions. Right. Wow. And you have, of course, um, Allison, who's a huge supporter of yours and and is kind of like a caretaker in times of need, it seems like, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Allison was actually with me uh, well before my diagnosis. So we started dating when I was 17. Okay. And she, uh, she was with me before my diagnosis, through my uh, addiction, through my diagnosis, Uh, Unfortunately, with my case, I did also end up spending time in jail because of my addiction and diagnosis. And so uh, she was there through all that. She watched, you know, my entire life kind of unfold in that way. And so she's been there to kind of help build me back up and make it possible for me to do what I'm doing today now. Yeah. And what about... I'm pretty sure I've seen some scenes of you and we'll get into TikTok. I can't wait to talk more about that as well, but I th- I'm pretty sure I saw some scenes where you actually have a dog that helped support you with hallucinations as well. Yeah, I have a schizophrenic service dog. I call her. Her name is Luna. She helps me with a few key aspects of kind of my everyday life at home. Um, she was never trained to be like a dog that could come out in public with me. She was trained professionally to help me with these certain symptoms. Um, so what she does is she helps with two main factors and that's self-harm and identifying hallucinations. So in terms of self-harm, I have a tendency when I'm having auditory hallucinations uh, to hit myself in the face and on the side of the head and on the ears. And it's something I've always done. I, it's 
involuntary. It's just my brain gets so overwhelmed from the auditory hallucinations and I can't shut them off. So my first instinct is to hit myself and she helps by grounding me. So she'll actually get in my lap or on my lap or she'll jump up on me um, and put her face right by my face to help ground me so that I don't uh, hurt myself in any way by hitting myself or biting myself. Wow, that is super cool. And when you say that kind of grounds you, does it, it almost bring you back to reality? Like, okay, this must be a delusion, a hallucination. It's sometimes it does, unless I'm really struggling with my hallucinations and delusions. A lot of the time, what it actually does is prevents the self harm long enough for me to identify there's an issue so I can take my emergency meds. Okay. Um, the same thing when she helps me identify hallucinations, it doesn't necessarily get rid of the hallucinations. It just help, helps me recognize that I am hallucinating and that I do need to take my emergency meds or contact Allison or do whatever I have to do to cope with those, uh, cope with those symptoms. Right, right. Wow, that is so awesome. So you, you mentioned just uh, in passing a couple times that you have dealt with drug addiction and you've dealt with being incarcerated. Can you share with us just a, a bit about when and how did you get into the drugs and was that a self-coping mechanism for you and then bring us all the way through the incarceration situation? Yeah, so a lot of people online, you know, I part of being really big online is I get a lot of hate comments. And one of the most common ones is people blaming my drug addiction for my schizophrenia, uh, not knowing that I had a hereditary disposition to it and that I actually didn't start using drugs until well after my symptoms began. Um, and the reason I started using drugs was a way to self-medicate and cope. Yeah. And it was actually something that I did as a way to briefly silence the voices. So um, using drugs would give me even just moments of quiet. And so I just kept chasing drugs as a way to deal with my symptoms instead of getting the help I needed because there is a stigma around mental illness. And oh, yeah. uh, e even when I had those moments of clarity where I recognized that something might be wrong with me, I was too afraid to go get help and seek the help I needed. People don't uh, realize how difficult it is to reach out for help. Even me with just major depression, it's a, my best friend gave me the name of somebody who only works with men with depression. It still took me like three weeks to reach out to that guy. And each week I'd text my friend and say, let him know I'm going to reach out this week. And, and I couldn't. So I, I get that. So the, the, what kind of drugs were you using at the time? For me, it was a lot of anything that would keep me awake. So the what it came down to for me was I, because of my delusions, I was afraid to go to sleep. Um, I had the I was having delusions that um, my wife or girlfriend at the time was you know waiting for me to fall asleep so she could call someone in and get me put in a psychiatric facility. I was having delusions that people were out to get me. My hallucinations were out to get me. And so I wanted to stay awake. And so I used any drugs that would keep me awake. So it was mostly, um, it was mostly opioids. It was things that, you know, 
uh, were keeping me up and going and days at a time with no sleep. And obviously all that did was negatively affect me uh, going forward because I was on top of being severely mental, mentally ill and not getting treated for that. I would go days without sleeping too. Oh my God, which is just a nightmare. Even even if you are, have no mental, if your mental health is perfect and you have such lack of sleep, it impacts your cognition, your memory, your focus, your moods, everything. I can't imagine how much that must have exacerbated what was going on with you. Exactly. And it was one of those things where it was just a never ending cycle because I would be really extremely paranoid and then I would be hearing the voices. And of course, I would use the drugs to try to silence the voices, which would work for just a very brief amount of time. But then it would lead to more paranoia and it would lead to more hallucinations, which would it was just an ongoing cycle. And it would keep me up days at a time. Wow. Wow. And was it pretty easy for you to get your hands on those drugs? Yeah. So I definitely, when it came to those types of drugs, I mean, I live in an area that's kind of in between uh, Madison or in between the Twin Cities and Chicago. So any type of drugs there is have been through this town. Okay. Um, And I was at the time, like I said, I was chasing anything to quiet the voices I experimented with all sorts of different types of drugs. Um, and it was mostly, like I said, it was mostly prescription pills, things like Xanax, Ritalin, or not Xanax, sorry. It was prescription pills like Ritalin and trying to think of the other ADHD medication. Right, um, right. It was like those, like the uppers, you know, anything that would keep me awake. Um, there was a lot of... I. I also used a very large amount of like cocaine and I had tried meth a few times as well, just as those were the drugs that kept people awake. And that's what I wanted and needed at the time. And so I was using anything to keep me awake. And so I even tried like hallucinogenic drugs, which horrible at the time, but I, you know, I didn't recognize that I had this mental illness and I didn't choose to acknowledge it. So I was like, hoping that by using hallucinogenic drugs like mushrooms and acid, that it would give my brain an excuse for having hallucinations. Right. Right. So like, it's weird to think, but I like, that's the only way I can rationalize why I was doing it was because I would take some of those like hallucinogenic drugs. And then my brain would be able to be like, Oh no, I'm not mentally ill. You know, I'm just seeing things because of this drug. Yeah. And so it kind of gave my brain an out, you know, right. which is like weird to look back on. Cause at that point it's like, well, you're identifying that something's wrong and you're trying to push the blame on something else. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say you were pretty much in a crisis situation and you really didn't know what the hell was going on. Right. So. Oh, absolutely. You were yeah. grasping at straws and doing what you could to try to stay, to stay sane at the time. Yeah. Know? What, to, what was it that eventually brought you to being incarcerated? I was actually uh, in a car accident that was caused by uh, me falling asleep behind the wheel And so because I was staying up days at a time, I fell asleep behind the wheel of the car and I injured a person in another vehicle. And so that unfortunately led to me being incarcerated. It did, however, lead to me being able to get sober and me 
recognizing that I had an issue. Uh, it was while I was in jail that I didn't have any distractions to, you know, deal with my hallucinations. And it was there that I recognized that I needed some sort, some sort of help. And so it was before I went in that I actually addressed the addiction part of it because I couldn't deal with the mental illness factor until I dealt with the addiction. And so I dealt with that first, not even like consciously, you know, it wasn't like I was like, Oh, I'm going to deal with my addiction and then my mental illness. Because at the time, even when I was trying to get better, I still didn't acknowledge that I had a mental illness. It wasn't until after I got out of jail that I finally got that diagnosis and started getting treatment. But I just knew that whatever was going on with me, I couldn't do anything about it until I addressed my addiction. Which is, which is really interesting that you, you took that upon yourself, that pathway, because there are plenty of dual diagnosis treatment centers these days. And I think the, it is known that whatever you're, you're self-medicating with booze, uh, whether it's alcohol or hard drugs, like you have to get your body clean from that before, like you said, before you can address the mental health piece. Yeah, because no doctor or psychiatrist in the world can properly treat you if you're still using, you know, because if they try medication that doesn't work because you're drinking and that affects your medication, they're never going to be able to find out what works well for you. And so it's one of those things that because it's so common with mental illness, you know, drugs and alcohol are so common with mental illness. Um, it's probably one of the leading things that prevents people from getting the help they need is they don't get the proper help for the addiction first. Right. Right. How long of a time were you in jail for then? It was, uh, it was expected to be a longer sentence because someone was injured in that accident I was in. And fortunately the family involved uh, during my court case said that they were not looking for me to, you know, have my life ruined over this. Uh, I'm very fortunate that the family involved, you know, recognized that I was not well and that I, uh, even though I was undiagnosed at the time, which might have played a role into the, into what happened, but they acknowledged that I needed, you know, some sort of help, even just on the addiction side of it. You know, a, a decent amount of time for someone who was 19 oh or God, 20 yeah. at the time. I spent my I spent my 21st birthday behind bars, and so wow. What uh, what would you say of that experience? I know it's probably tough to sum it up, but it must have been hellish in some ways, and and learning in other ways. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what got me to where I am today. I I don't know if I would have been alive had I not been in that accident right. uh, because I don't know if I would have stopped using drugs. I don't know if I would have ever stopped, uh, if I would have ever stopped avoiding getting the treatment I needed. And so it's hard to say, but I think I would have spent a lot longer time battling those demons had I not been in that accident. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly a silver lining. Yeah. And was it, uh, was it, was this like a maximum security place, minimum security? What was the whole system like? Um, I spent my time in a county jail, so I actually didn't have to. I didn't have to be in a like prison institution. Okay, how does that differ from a prison? Um, you have, I mean, there's no, there's pros and cons. Obviously, like prison is going to be more dangerous. There's a lot more going on there. 
Um, the downside to being in a county jail is you have no yard time. You have no outside time. I was literally indoors uh, 24-7 because they didn't have a yard. They didn't have anything like that. So it was, you know, a lot of sitting in a cell block. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that was pretty much it. Wow. And so that's, that was a, you know, decent portion of my life. I had my phone calls to be able to call and talk to friends and family. And then, uh, it was, you know, a lot of, were you in your own cell? Yeah. So like you had a, a cell and then a full size cell block where like during the day you got out and you, you know, went into the cell block itself. Okay. And so there was some interaction with the other people who were in jail serving time as well? Yep, absolutely. Uh-huh. And did you did you get treated pretty well, would you say? Or, I mean, were you scared for your life at times? Uh, I was very scared going in there. But honestly, because I was so severely mentally ill, the people around me recognized it. They could see it. I would say that people probably did look out for me in a way. I don't remember a lot of that first couple of weeks because I was so in shock and I know that I was hallucinating and I know that I was, you know, I was without drugs and I was without distractions. And right. so I, I know that to the people around me, I probably appeared very unstable and I probably, it, it probably was obvious to some people that I was struggling with schizophrenia. Like I, I always say, there's probably people who recognized it far before I did Yeah. because I didn't recognize when I was talking to people that weren't there, but other people definitely do. Right. You know, that's not right. something you can really hide. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, I definitely think that I was treated a little bit better because people knew I was already struggling. So yeah. there, there definitely were people who looked out for me specifically because, they could tell that I was struggling and they didn't want people to take advantage of me. Right. So oh, that's cool. I, a bit of humanity I, I, in there. Yeah, absolutely. I think people forget that a lot of people in jails and prisons are also people who struggle with severe mental illness. They're also people who struggle with addiction and alcoholism. Like those are the most common reasons that people are in yes. institute or in, you know, our prison system. Very uh, good, kind human beings who are going through a challenging time. Yeah, a lot of people that have just made mistakes. Now, that being said, obviously there are bad people in there, but a large majority of our prison system is filled up with nonviolent drug offenders yeah. and it's filled up with people who, you know, are homeless and people who are struggling with mental illness. Yeah, that's a and really so that's, good point. Uh, how about your cell itself? Was it the classic that you would see on TV, just like cement with a toilet and a thin little bed? Pretty much. Yeah, it was, we were in an open, uh, we were in an open area, but yeah, it was all the, yeah, we had basically what you'd see on like no bars. It was windows, but okay. <laughs> like everyone's like, Oh, what was it like being behind bars? I'm like, well, there's no actual bars. It was windows <laughs> and stuff like that. But yeah, other than that, I mean, concrete, you know, there metal tables bolted to the floor and, uh, -huh. uh you know, the metal, the traditional metal toilets, shower area, and that's pretty much it. And, and when you say the cell block, like, was that an area you could go and hang out during a certain time of the day? And were there TVs or anything? Yep, there was uh, there was one TV, you know, you could be out there and you could uh, watch. Yeah, you know, it was tough because people are always arguing about what to watch and stuff like that. So I kind of avoided it. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, people would watch TV. I mostly played board games and stuff with people and cards and okay, um, 
Could you be in got, that cell block any time, or did you have to spend a lot of time with, in your own cell? Uh, cell block during the day, but during the night you were in oh, your cell. Gotcha. So, yeah, during the day, because there's no, I mean, there's no rec time, no yard time. Yeah. So basically the whole time you're you're out right. in the main cell block. Okay. Okay. And were you actually diagnosed while you were in jail or the, that entire time still undiagnosed and still just dealing with hallucinations, delusions, and so forth? Yeah, no, I recognized that I was having issues while in jail, but I couldn't get the help I needed while I was there. Um, I did reach out and it kind of got pushed aside. Like treatment for mental illness isn't exactly top priority in bills. And so it wasn't until I got out that I was able to get properly diagnosed. Okay, right. Wow. So tell us about that. So you, you get out, how long from the time you got out of jail and until you did get the diagnosis and tell us about receiving that diagnosis. I don't know exactly how long it was like to a T, but I know it was very quick after, like in a matter of months I got out and I started talking to a, a psychiatrist and it was very quick that I got diagnosis. Like I said, because of my mother's history, right? Uh, they did all the traditional tests, but they didn't waste a lot of time on things that were not schizophrenia related because they were pretty positive that that's what I had. Yeah. So and, they and ran that. all the tests and uh, they did a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, there's no medical test necessarily to prove schizophrenia. Right. So they have to do a lot of psychological tests. They have to do a lot of, I just re- remember being asked a lot of questions, asked to relive a lot of those experiences and those hallucinations. And, uh, you know, they do brain scans and stuff just to make sure that you don't have some sort of tumor or some sort yeah. of brain damage that could be causing hallucinations. Right. Cause there are, there are physical health symptoms that can lead to hallucinations. Yeah. And so they want to rule that stuff out. Like I said, I th- in my case, I think they did skip some of those just because of my family history. Right. But it it was a you know a couple week process of getting in, talking to someone, doing all the testing, and then getting formally diagnosed. Yeah. And do you remember the the time when you got that formal diagnosis? And do you remember that conversation, the the doctor talking to you, and how that landed with you? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the few things in my experience that I remember very vividly because that the whole time leading up to that, it's a lot of confusion. It's a lot of looking back and not knowing exactly what was real, what wasn't. Um, But I remember receiving that diagnosis because at that point, me and my wife had talked and like we were both pretty sure that that's what was going on. I had talked to my mom, you know, and after a couple of weeks of testing, they brought me in to give me the, the final diagnosis. And I remember her telling me that, that I was uh, schizophrenic. And it, it was one of those things where initially I was terrified. I didn't know how to react. Over time, I think I looked at it more like a blessing because it meant I could get the help I needed. I could get medication. But at the time of the diagnosis, uh, I was really scared about how people were going to react and how everyone was going to treat me and what does this mean for medication? And so it's really scary initially. Um, Over time, I I found it to be, you know, the best thing that happened to me was getting diagnosed. Right. But 
but during that time it was absolutely terrifying do you think uh, having your mother who you knew had schizoaffective disorder do you think that uh, impacted how your diagnosis your diagnosis landed with you absolutely i think a lot of people hear the word schizophrenia and don't 100% know what it means like they they have an idea of what it means but they see movies and they see people on the news who have committed terrible acts, you know, right. and a, a majority of the time, what schizophrenia actually is, is it's an individual terrified and confused. Right. And that's, that's not what you see on, you know, movies and TV shows. You see people who are out of their minds trying to hurt other people or trying to hurt themselves. And yeah, although that, although that can happen, it's actually, much more common for people with schizophrenia to, to be, you know, more harm to themselves than anyone else. And it's way more likely for them to be the victims of crimes than to commit violent crimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, so, and the research shows that too. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where it, it definitely helped me because I saw my mom go through it and I was never afraid of her. I was scared for her because she was terrified. Right. She was confused. She didn't know what was going on. Yeah, And so I knew that my journey wasn't going to be me being like a danger to myself or others. It was going to be me dealing with people misunderstanding the diagnosis and people not knowing how to interact with me and not knowing how to react when I'm having symptoms. And so I knew what actual challenges I faced and they were different than the ones that I think most people think of when they get diagnosed because they haven't experienced it. They haven't lived around it. They haven't witnessed it. Right. And so I definitely think having my mom diagnosed before me and watching her go through it helped a bit yeah. because I knew that once I started medication, I knew that it probably wouldn't cure me, but it would at least help. And that's what it did, you know? Yeah. Everyone yeah. hopes that medication will cure you, but... And most of the times with people with schizophrenia, just uh, it just essentially is giving them less symptoms, less intense symptoms, and so makes it easier to function day to day. Right. So a couple things I want to mention. One is it's interesting because you did have that background. You did have your experience with your mom, yet you still talk about how scary it was, which makes sense to me. But I'm wondering, too, about like people who don't have that experience have never really been around anybody, and all of a sudden they're diagnosed with the schizophrenia. So it makes sense, like you said, that it, it helped you. It did surprise me that you are being treated, you're doing like everything you can, right? Yet you still deal with hallucinations and delusions. Because like you said, and so many people think and believe that Oh, you get medicated and it's all gone and it's all better. Stay on your meds. You never hallucinate, never have a delusion again. And I have to say, through my ignorance, that w is how I kind of figured it was. Yeah, it's a really common misconception. And it's something that people online, because I have such a big social media following, they assume I'm faking because I still have symptoms to this day. And the, no one understands that just because I'm medicated doesn't mean I'm a hundred, I'm not cured, you know, right. by any means. And I, I think that would, that tracks with any mental illness. If you have depression, if you have anxiety, if you have ADHD, medication only helps to a point, right? You still will have days that are worse than others. You will still have 
episodes, you know, throughout all that time. And so very few like mental illnesses are something that can just be magically cured. It's something you live with and you treat over time. And schizophrenia is no different than that. Um, And I think there are forms of medication that do basically provide a symptom-free life for people. But what other people outside don't see is that means they're either taking medication every single day or they're getting monthly injections. Like that's not just happening. It's not like they took medication for two weeks like it was an antibiotic and now it's just gone. Like that's a lifetime of treatment. Yeah. And so I don't, my mom has been diagnosed for so long now. I don't even, I can't even like put it to years, but she is, I mean, still on the same med she was back then. Right. With, with maybe a few changes here and there, but she's still medicated to just treat those symptoms. Do you think though, like you said, some people may seem like they're, a hundred percent or so, be, but they're, they are taking meds daily or injections you mentioned. So do you think that there, there are, or can be people living with schizophrenia who literally have no symptoms as long as they're on their meds? Cause I would imagine meds work differently for every single body, right? Everybody's brain chemistry, all the, everything is different and maybe certain meds work better for different people with schizophrenia than others. Yeah, absolutely. There are definitely people out there who have a hundred percent, uh, who have no symptoms, who have a hundred percent symptom relief. It's not common, but it happens. And so it's one of those things with me where maybe even if we mix up my meds or we try something else, maybe I could get to that point. It's not something that we've been fortunate enough to get to yet. Right. And so it's one of those things also where I'm very happy with my current med regimen because it's good enough to dilute my symptoms, make it easy to live day to day, but it also is not so much medication that it takes away from, you know, who I am. It doesn't, doesn't create this, you know, when I first started medication, everyone goes through the, the period where it basically turns you into a zombie and people assume that's forever. And what I found was the longer I took medication, the less of that, like, nullifying effect it had on me and so i was able to regain a lot of who i was and a lot of my personality but still be treated for this like serious mental illness and still get symptom relief yeah and so i think that's an awesome point because you're also finding this balance between side effects right i mean that's what the zombie like effect that you're talking about is a side effect right or yeah other side effects too right like Maybe it makes you gain weight, but it doesn't make you gain so much weight that, you know, that you wouldn't want to take it. So it's kind of finding that balance and working with the doctor to find the right medication that has the least side effects and the most impact for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's a lot of trial and error I found, you know, the meds I'm on today are not the meds I got started on. And so we, you know, it's a lot of changing changing your prescriptions, changing dosage. And so over time you find, you know, a good mix of medication that you can function really well on. And some people do reach a point of a hundred percent symptom relief as well. Right. Right. So I have to ask you, you know, I had the opportunity to meet you and I've watched a lot of your, your work and so forth. How have you educated yourself on schizophrenia? Because you seem so knowledgeable about it. 
Do you do you take the time to study it? I know obviously a lot of it is through lived experience, but you clearly know much more than just what you've lived through. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was I was even going to mention just now when you were talking about how people may be walking around and having no symptoms and you might not even be able to tell them apart from anyone else. Um, there's actually the statistic is one out of a hundred people live with schizophrenia and that's not something you li- learn from lived experience. You know, right. I've definitely done my fair re- a fair amount of research. So um, I started doing research on schizophrenia before I ever experienced it because of my mother. Okay. Uh, when she was first diagnosed, you know, everyone, was terrified. No one understood. I live in a really small rural community. No one quite understood what was going on. And I'll admit, neither did I. I was super young. I was in high school. I I had no idea what was going on. And so I started doing research because I would go to health class and they would talk about schizophrenia and how, you know, it was a violent disorder and people who were on it needed to be institutionalized. And it just didn't seem right to me being that I'd lived with a person who had it and she, you know, she definitely had her issues, but she was not a dangerous person by any means. And so I started doing my own independent research. I wrote a few papers on it in high school and that was kind of the end of it. You know, I didn't do extensive research. I did a little bit, just enough to know about what my mom was going through. And then it wasn't until after I was diagnosed that I really started deep diving into what the illness was, not just what it, what it did to a person, but also how it was, how it takes over people, how it starts, how it affects people's everyday lives, how it changes people's uh, ability to interact with other people. I, I looked into every aspect of schizophrenia to see if it was like the end of my life, you know, anytime someone gets a diagnosis, they're so afraid that, you know, Oh, I got a schizophrenia diagnosis. This is it, you know? Yeah. And so for me, it was more, I wanted to make sure that I was going to be able to do stuff after this diagnosis. I didn't want it to be like, that was just the rest of my life. Right. And so I started doing more research and learning about the illness and realized that there were plenty of people um, living with the illness and, functioning and being able to live very successful lives. Uh, I know you also know Michelle Hammer. She was my first, she was my first inspiration to start doing mental health advocacy because I used to listen to a podcast she did and she talked about living with schizophrenia. And that was the inspiration that gave, that I got to start talking about it myself. And so there are other advocates out there who I found that made me feel not normal, but more understood Yeah, made me feel more uh, able to express those emotions. And so it was definitely something I needed. And I hope that's what people find with my content. Yeah. You know, that's why I started TikTok was so that if someone found my page, like they looked up schizophrenia, found me, I was hoping that that was a page people would find and be able to recognize that, Hey, maybe they have this or they know someone who has it, or they're already diagnosed and just need reassurance that life does go on. Yeah. So that was your real incentive to start the advocacy work just to, to help others who may be out there not knowing where to go for support. I wish I could say that the reason I started was just kind of on a whim. 
I, because I don't think anyone who's an advocate ever plans on being an advocate. Right. Uh, like that was not my intention. My intention with TikTok was to just share my story. I was using it almost more like a personal blog. I, I didn't really make the content for anyone else. I was just in the early stages of coming to terms with the illness myself. Right. And so it was more about me learning to live with and accept the illness and diagnosis and through that, I got to grow and grow my social media following to the point where I was an advocate. You know, I was speaking to and for thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And so it was nothing I ever really planned on doing. It was something that I just felt passionately about, you know, learning more about schizophrenia, sh sharing my lived experience about schizophrenia. And it became advocacy through my actions. Right. Right. And would you say, who would you say are your ideal TikTok followers? Um, clearly, people with schizophrenia. I would imagine they're family members, mental oh, yeah. health professionals. I mean, it would be awesome for a ton of folks, I would think. Yeah, I would say family members are probably one of the biggest. Um, a lot of people with schizophrenia follow me, but there are also so many people with schizophrenia out there who either haven't accepted their diagnosis or are not in a stable enough position to learn more about the illness. Right. And so I feel like a majority of the people who follow me are friends and family members who have a loved one with the illness or they believe that someone they know has the illness. Those are probably my biggest group. Yeah. But over time, I've definitely gained people from all over the world. You know, with 1.2 million followers, there are people who follow me literally all over the world from all different walks of life. And so I definitely see a lot of doctors and psychiatrists who follow me. I've had doctors and psychiatrists leave comments on my videos awesome. uh, and be like, Hey, the technique you have with using your phone to identify hallucinations, I told it to one of my clients and now they are not afraid to go out in public because they're able to use this coping mechanism as a way to feel more comfortable talking to people. That is and so, so like, cool. It, yeah. And so I get this like real feedback from people who are living with schizophrenia or people who are helping other people live with schizophrenia and they're finding my content helpful. They're finding my content and using it. And so it really inspires me to, you know, keep going with yeah. it as well. That's awesome. You know, one thing that I know you spoke about at the conference, and I've seen you talk about it a little bit um, on some of your videos, too, on TikTok, is the fact that you do use humor. And you've made it sound like, like that might offend some people. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I do joke about my schizophrenia a lot. It's one of the things I do as a coping mechanism. I have, I have a lot of, you know, trouble dealing with this illness. I have a lot of trouble recognizing and talking about some of the symptoms I deal with. So it's really helpful for me to be able to use humor as a way to bring light to the subject yeah. uh, and be able to talk about it because it's a difficult topic, you know, yeah. it's not something that is easily discussed. And so by me using humor, it gives me the ability to open up dialogue and conversation. Yeah. Unfortunately, some people see it as really insensitive. And I understand that I'm not, I'm not saying anyone 
shouldn't be mad at me if they truly feel that what I'm doing is insensitive. But I also want people to recognize that everyone copes differently. Everyone is going to approach mental illness differently, too. And so one of the ways I've coped is through humor, which fortunately is also how I've gained a majority of my followers because a lot of people who never would have been able to have that first exposure to schizophrenia because they didn't want to talk about something that taboo, they didn't want to talk about something so stigmatized, um, got into my content because I either made a joke about schizophrenia or I duetted a joke about schizophrenia and reacted to it. Yeah. It, it gives people a safe space to come in and start learning about the illness because they, you know, got introduced to it with a bit of humor. And so I can see how it may appear insensitive, but I think I've actually informed more people that were unaware of schizophrenia because of that aspect. Yeah. And it's, I don't even know really how to say it. It's you use humor, but you're not poking fun at people with schizophrenia. You know, it's just, it's very different to me. And I'm, I'm surprised. I guess I understand how it might offend some people. I'm, I'm the same way. And a lot of times I find it difficult to add humor when talking about depression, right? Like I used to joke at that, uh, at that conference, the healthy voices conference. Um, I've become a pretty close friend with Justin, who's a testicular cancer advocate who uses humor all the time. And I'm like, that's an easy one to make a lot of jokes about. Oh, yeah. Depression. Depression's a little more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. But I I love the humor. And I think you're right. I would imagine a ton of your followers like saw one of your videos and laughed because the way you present it is and it's not just humor, but you are incredibly down to earth. You're real, you're authentic, you're vulnerable, which is huge, right? You're not yeah. afraid to talk about it. And I think all of those pieces, including the humor, is probably why you're sitting at 1.2 million followers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I remember um, one of your funny videos I'll just share was talking, I think it was... It's right on your face, and you said, some people ask me if it's safe to drive. Well, let's ask this guy sitting next to me, and you turn yeah. the video, and nobody's there. <laughs> yeah, that one that one did really well, and it only took me like 10 seconds to film. <laughs> yeah, but that's the kind of humor. It's very funny, and I know Luna, your dog, has been in some of your videos that are very informative too, right? Like that's showing you have some videos out there showing how Luna supports you with your hallucinations. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's one of those things where, like, like I said, I think people do see it as like kind of insensitive, but a lot of the reasons that I am able to, uh, able to deal with this illness and help educate people is through some of the humor that I've used to, you know, kind of, kind of explain what I'm dealing with. Yeah, I think it's a phenomenal. I think you do a great job of it. And I think your humor is awesome. And it saddens me that people would be, um, you know, feel like you were insensitive because I don't see that at all. But everybody is has a right to their own opinion. And luckily, yeah. you know, they can unfollow you. That's what I would tell them. If you're really yeah, upset, at, upset at his humor, then unfollow. That's the beautiful thing about our social media these days, too. One thing you mentioned, not just people who believe you're insensitive, but you have mentioned once or twice haters. 
I'm curious, yeah. like, how do you deal with that? Because I can imagine, right, 1.2 million followers. Yeah, you probably get a lot of people giving you crap or hating or on you or, like you said, maybe um, bad-mouthing you because you had a drug addiction or blame that on your schizophrenia or maybe give you a hard time because you talk about being incarcerated. How do you yeah, deal absolutely. with the the haters? Um, a lot of it has gotten to the point where once you reach a certain following, it's inevitable, you know? For sure. And so what I try to do is I will engage with comments right away when I post a video because that's when people who follow me are going to be the first people to see a video when I post it. Um, and so those are going to be the people who genuinely care about my content. They want to engage with me. And so for the first you know, a couple hours I'll engage with people in my comments. And then unfortunately I kind of have to disconnect yeah. from the rest of the comments uh, because especially if a video goes viral, it's reaching all sorts of people, including people who don't follow you. And so I have a video that has 10 million views on TikTok. And so, yes, it's filled with some very good supportive comments. It's also filled with a, a lot of negative, hateful, um, mis or uneducated, you know, comments and right. questions. And so a lot of it is, uh, one is learning to kind of deal with it, unfortunately, which I hate to say because you shouldn't have to deal with it. But if social media is something you're wanting to do as, uh, as you know, a form of advocacy, there is a little bit of a kind of having to just deal with it aspect. The other thing is finding ways to avoid it. Like yeah. I said, I, I only read comments for, the first couple hours of engagement. And then I have to stop looking at the video because I know that's when people who don't follow me will start to see it, you know, if it starts reaching other people's for you pages. And so same thing with uh, any of the social media platforms I post on, I, I don't go back and read comments well after the post because yeah. that's when you start to find more of the negative stuff. I have addressed some of the hate comments early on, but I'm not going to continue to defend myself and address hate comments because that's uh, it's unfortunately what they want. They want yeah. some sort of engagement. They want some sort of ability to be like, oh, look at me. I got this guy with a million followers to react to my comment, even right. if it's me, you know, upset, even if it's me. They see that as a win. Yeah. And I, I don't want to give that to them. So yeah. uh, sometimes I will address certain comments if I really feel like they need to be addressed. Uh -huh. Other than that, I try to avoid them. Yeah, I think that's a great idea to for your own mental health. Um, what about, there must be like a fine line between those who maybe question what you're saying and actually want a dialogue versus being disrespectful about it. Do you know what I mean? So maybe yeah. you throw out a stat or, or a way you cope with schizophrenia and somebody gets angered by it, but re respectfully tries to engage with you. Would you engage with those types of followers? Yeah, I try to, as long as they're not being hateful or harmful, I will yeah. try to engage. I'll engage with anyone that has questions. Um, I have a lot of moderators on my live videos who will, you know, they're very quick to defend me and kick people out of the chat. But there's a lot of times where I'll say, hey, don't block this person because I genuinely think they're, you know, confused on the topic or don't understand the topic. And if I block them, they no longer get a chance to learn about schizophrenia. Uh, so yeah. sometimes I try to endure a little bit of it just to help educate someone. Yeah. Now, I found a lot of the times 
someone coming in and directly yelling at me, calling me names, hating, you know, hating on me, those people aren't ready to receive that information. Right. So it does, it does usually mean I have to block them or stuff like that. Yeah. But every once in a while I'll get through to someone and they stick around and learn a lot, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's hard because, you know, you got to, I have to prioritize my own mental health before social media, yeah. which means, although I would love to have that open dialogue with more people, I can't mentally do that all the time. Yeah. Well, you've got your priorities set, right? I mean, you yep. need to take care of your mental health. And if there's a piece of the social media and advocacy you're doing that is going to negatively impact your mental health, then it's time to stay away. I know I'm just, I reflect on how I engage with people because um, I don't have the kind of followers you do, but I certainly get some people, not a lot, but who are opposed to some, you know, coping strategy I share or something. And I want to engage in a conversation with them and I try to get better at it because I have heard the term that like Twitter where I'm on a lot can be an echo chamber, right? Like you, you hear the positive feedback from those who are cheering you on and so forth. And there, and I don't want to fall into that. I do want to engage in challenging conversations. Sometimes I find that I just get too passionate about it too. And it gets me angry. And then I just, I have to step aside too. Yeah. And there's like certain conversations I'm more than willing to have, but when someone is accusing me of like faking my illness or stuff like that, I'm not going to engage with those comments. They do not deserve a moment of your time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are comments that really do negatively affect my mental health because I have put so much of my life out for people to see and observe. And that's really hard to do. And so when I have people accusing me of like, faking my illness or I have people accusing me of embellishing and exaggerating my illness. Uh, That stuff is really frustrating because it's like, I only share the most difficult times of my life so that people can see what it's actually like living with schizophrenia, because I could, I could talk about it all day, every day. There's plenty of advocates doing that, but I post videos of me having symptoms. You know, I have, I've posted videos of me literally talking to people that aren't there Um, and so that's not easy to do, but people see it and I think it's hard for people to accept. And so their first thought is I'm either faking it or doing it for attention. Um, they, it's hard for some people to rationalize that I'm doing it so that other people can see what it's like living my day to day life. Yeah. And, and I think people, especially now, like early on, people were never like, you're doing it for fame because I wasn't like. I didn't have a big following. Right. But as as soon as my following got big, all of a sudden everyone was like, he's doing it for attention. He's doing it to be TikTok famous. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But what about all the years I went without internet fame? You know, like (laughs) what about all the years that I, you know, was mentally ill and no one cared, you know? So it's, yeah, it's really frustrating with those type of comments. And those are the ones I have to just ignore and move past because I, because I know those are the ones that are going to get me, upset and heated so i have to kind of ignore them i think uh yeah i can't i can't admit like and it's easy to say oh i'm just not gonna let that bother me and i'm gonna you know not respond but they do have an impact and they are shitty sorry to use that word they're they're shitty comments right to like accuse you of something like that and yeah so and like i said it's easy to say ah it's not gonna impact me i'm gonna let it go it's tough 
And so I think I'm glad to hear how you're kind of monitoring, you know, you engage in the beginning, you know, it's going to be people who follow you and then you step away um, because you shouldn't have to endure the, the crappy comments and people who don't believe you again. It's like, you know what, if you think he's fake, then just don't follow him. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yep, exactly. It's that easy. You don't have to be a, a jerk about it. Um, and I've literally made those comments to people who claim that, who try to say I'm faking and stuff like that. I'm like, if you truly believe that there is no point for you to be on my page. Yeah. Uh, and actually it would help both of us if you just didn't come back. Right. Exactly. So where do you go from here with your advocacy? I know. Well, first of all, share with us, you have a website, you do public speaking, right? And yeah. you have a book coming out, I think too, right? Yep. It's a, it's a long process, but we're getting there with it. Um, so I do uh, a lot of motivational speaking. I speak about, uh, schizophrenia specifically. I talk about mental health and addiction, mental health and incarceration. I've talked to workplaces about mental health in the workplace. And so I very, I'm very fortunate to travel all over the country and do that. I do have a website. I do have a website specifically for my motivational speaking information, and that's codygreen.com. I do also have information about the book on there. We're still in the early stages of it. It keeps getting pushed back because the editing process is way more than I thought it was going to be. And so I am writing a book right now called Mentally Ill Influencer, and it's specifically about how to be an advocate for mental illness using social media as a form of advocacy. And so that's something I'm really excited for and something I'm really passionate about, obviously, because I've been successful in it myself. And I'm excited to help other people who are already trying to be mental health advocates, but don't know where to start. They don't know how to, you know, access certain platforms or utilize certain platforms correctly. And so it's a pretty simple book, just about tips and ways to get started. That's awesome. Awesome. So again, the webs, your website is CodyGreen.com. And just so listeners know, and I'll have it in the show notes, but that's Cody with a K. It's, it's K-O-D-Y-G-R-E-E-N.com. Awesome, awesome. And of course, TikTok, like we said, 1.2 million followers uh, as the schizophrenic hippie. Um, Man, it is great to talk to you. I know you have Instagram and some others. People can probably just Google the schizophrenic hippie, I bet. Yeah, if you guys find me on TikTok, I have all my links in my bio on there. So Okay, awesome. And if people want to reach out to you, is the best way through your website? Yep, uh, I have... Uh... There is a spot to send me messages directly to my email from my website. So that's usually the quickest way to get a hold of me. Okay. Awesome. And know that uh, Cody gets like tons of messages. <laughs> and so he, he probably, it's not going to be like a, an instant response, I'm sure. Um, no, it's a, I, I definitely have a hard time keeping up. So yeah. give, if you're going to reach out to me, be patient. I am not someone who can get back to you immediately, but I promise I will get around to it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, I want to thank you, um, for being on the show, but before we end, uh, I want to ask you the same question I ask all of my guests, which is, if somebody is out there struggling and listening to this show, and in this case, in particular, you know, maybe they, they think they've had a, a hallucination or, or two, or maybe delusional, 
or maybe they're just struggling with depression, what would be your biggest piece of advice to them? I would start by saying that no matter what you're struggling with, a lot of people try to minimize what they're going through. Um, I think you might have even said it earlier on, not to call you out here, but when we were talking about my symptoms, you said, I just have major depression. And I get that a lot as someone with schizophrenia. Um, and people always say, well, I just have anxiety. I just have depression. I just, that does not matter. We all are going through struggles. Some may be different from others, but none of them are worse. So no matter what you're going through, whether it's anxiety, ADHD, depression, schizophrenia, make sure you're acknowledging it, talking to the people around you and getting the help you need. Uh, as soon as you do that, the world is your oyster. You can literally get back to doing whatever you want to do, but you need to get the help first. Yeah, that's awesome advice. In fact, uh, my, one of my most recent blog posts is titled, Others Have It Worse, because I yep. get frustrated too. Like So many people don't reach out because they look, they're like, well, they got it so much worse. I need to just be okay. And you don't have to compare. It doesn't have to be worse. If, exactly. you're, if you're struggling, reach out for help. Don't minimize it. So I love that. Really like that um, feedback, that uh, piece of advice. So, Cody, I want to thank you for everything you're putting out into the world, all this good. Um, can't wait to get your book once that's eventually out. And, uh, and I really want to thank you for taking time for being on The Depression Files. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Al. All right. Make sure you stay healthy. Yeah, you too, man. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. This is one small way that would help me out greatly. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can call, text, or chat 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can visit suicide.org slash suicide dash hotlines for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you would like to connect directly with me or have a topic to suggest, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.